Hello, welcome to the Catholic Information Center. I'm very excited that you've decided to spend your time with us and with Professor Michael Bacalic. He's here to discuss his new book, Mary's Voice in the Gospel According to John. Now, Michael is the Professor of Ethics and Social Policy at the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America here in Washington, DC. You can learn more about his esteemed career and previous works all which we sell here at the Catholic Information Center Bookstore by reading the video description below. Thank you again for choosing to spend your time with us here at the CIC and be sure to follow us on social media and to sign up for our email newsletter. This is the best way to stay up to date on all the programming and spiritual resources that the CIC has to offer you. And without further ado, I give the screen to our friend, Michael Bacalic. Greetings everyone, it's a real pleasure to be here this evening. Thank you Rosemary for arranging this talk and Father Charles for hosting it. This is the first event that's live at the CIC in a long time book event. And I'm just delighted and honored to be the guest. I'm going to speak about the book, Mary's Voice in the Gospel According to John. And um, let me tell you a little bit about how the book came to be, because I know that people like to know how books came to be in book events. So I'm deeply convinced that one of the most important things Christians can do is to read the scripture on a daily basis because a personal relationship with our Lord is the foundation of uh, the life of discipleship and the search for holiness which our society so desperately needs. So I've been doing that for many years. I started reading Greek um, in graduate school, uh, I started learning Greek, I, or learned Greek in graduate school. I started reading the New Testament in Greek and have been doing that for, for decades now. And um, it seemed to me that I would see things there that weren't really expressed well in the translations. The translations are fine, but um, you know, kind of bringing out certain nuances. And then I would lead Bible study groups and ask questions in certain ways that people found very interesting. So it, it seemed to me I should try to share this with others. And so I began with the shortest gospel, the Gospel of Mark, and I wrote a book called The Memoirs of St. Peter, and that was two years ago. I gave a talk here on that book. While I was working in that book, I came, became convinced of the thesis that, as was held in the early church, the Gospel of Mark was a kind of uh, taking down by Mark of the preaching of St. Peter. I didn't start that book with a thesis. I was convinced of that thesis as I went along. This book's a little bit different. In this book, I actually did become, um, I wanted to test out a thesis. And I approached the book with a thesis in mind. And the thesis is this, that Mary lived with John uh, for as many as 30 years. So on the, Jesus died in, say, 33 AD. And the tradition is not really clear, but Mary's passing from this world was probably 60 to 65 AD, so that's as many as 30 years that they lived together. John's Gospel, I think, can be dated fairly late, 80 or 90 AD. So we have a, a work uh, which was written after John spent as many as 30 years with Our Lady. And uh, humanly speaking, um, I don't think I could live a, spend a day with Mary without its influencing everything I thought about the life of Christ afterwards. So it seemed to me to be, an, so to speak, antecedently very likely that you would be able to detect the influence, if you will, of Mary on, on John and his gospel. Now, this thesis, in a way, coalesced in, coalesced in my imagination, strangely enough, through reading a sonnet of Robert Frost. I was at a dinner party. At, at my university then. I was, I was at Ave Maria University in Florida. And one of my colleagues told about how once in Harvard Square with Seamus Haney they were reciting poems back and forth and he had recited the Sonnet of Frost and Haney, Haney really thought it was just exquisite. I was very taken with it. Um, I found it astonishing. I memorized it. I would walk around contemplating it. Let me read it for you. It's called Never Again Would Bird's Song Be the Same. He would declare, and could himself believe, that the birds there, in all the garden round, from having heard the day-long voice of Eve, had added to their own an oversound, her tone of meaning but without the words. Admittedly, an eloquence so soft could only have had an influence on birds, 
when call or laughter carried it aloft. Be that as may be, she was in their song. Moreover, her voice upon their voices crossed had now persisted in the woods so long that probably it never would be lost. Never again would bird's song be the same, and to do that to birds was why she came. So in my imagination, as I thought about this, Eve became Mary, the birds became the evangelists. And so I thought to myself, well, can you discern the song of Mary in the writings of the evangelists? And John was the obvious choice. It was actually this poem that led me to think about this idea. Now, so I want to say something about method here. Um, from Newman, I have acquired the method of first looking at a subject matter through what Newman calls antecedent probabilities, and then examining the evidence directly. Turns out Newman got this from Watley's rhetoric. He assisted Watley not simply in a treatise on logic, but also a treatise on rhetoric. And this is uh, the approach that Watley um, recommends. And Newman made a precis outline of Watley's treatise and taught all of his students at Oxford to follow this method of persuasion. And then if you go to work such as Development of Doctrine of Newman, you'll see that he'll spend the first few chapters talking about how development is antecedently likely and then examining the evidence in the historical record for development of doctrine. So I do the same thing in this work. I, first I consider antecedent probabilities and then I examine the evidence directly. And the evidence is of two kinds. It's kind of global, attaching to the Gospel of John as a whole, and then in particular detail. So the antecedent likelihoods, well, I already mentioned one that's fairly um, considerable that Mary and John lived together for as many as 30 years. It's antecedently highly likely, or you might say antecedently almost impossible that that could happen. And John would not be, so to speak, of the same mind as Mary about how to represent the life of Christ to others. Then both were contemplative souls. This is clear both from the accounts of Mary, how she stored things up in her heart, and thought about them, and also from John's writings and the tradition about John. Now, souls like that, when they're together, um, it's a back and forth constantly. They're always talking about divine things together. Then John, in his gospel, signals that he's a, self, a, a kind of self-effacing um, personality. He doesn't like to put himself first. He likes to defer to those he regards as having greater authority than himself. The famous scene from the Easter morning gospel where Peter and John run to the tomb and John gets there fast cause faster because he's younger and then he pauses and he lets Peter go in. He doesn't even name himself in his gospel. It's the disciple whom Jesus loved. So somebody with that kind of personality would naturally defer to Mary in uh, matters about, again, how to represent the life of her son to others. And then, of course, there's that third word from the cross. There are seven words from the cross in Scripture and these words were not, so to speak, um, improvised on the spot. I think <laughs> Jesus didn't kind of find himself on the cross and then kind of figure out what he wanted to say. These are important words, and they've been reflected on by the tradition for centuries. And the third, of course, is mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. I regard this as deliberate. I say it's authoritative because what our Lord says makes it happen. So that he, he, he effected a bond between mother and son through those words. It's also typological. Uh, it's a type. So in saying that, all Christians became children of Mary, and Mary became the mother of all Christians. And it's further hermeneutical in the sense that John didn't have to include that detail in his gospel. And the fact that it did tells us something about how to read the gospel. So these are some of the antecedent probabilities, and there are others. So I think you put them together and it's antecedently highly likely that we should detect signs of Mary's voice or influence. I don't really like the word influence because it suggests that the gospel was unwinding in a certain direction and Mary kind of intervened and changed its direction. I prefer to, to speak of there being of one mind about how to represent the life of Christ to others. So, but I think that the evidence is so subtle that it's not a matter of attempting to prove the conclusion from evidence 
from, and certainly not proof text, although I do have, um, possibly there is a proof text, and I'll say something about that in just a second. It's rather, <coughs> I assume, a method which I call Bayesian, because it's similar to Bayesian influence, uh, inference. It's assume robustly your thesis that there was influence, and then look at the evidence with a view towards saying what would be predictable, or what would be expected, or what would tend to conform to this um, assumption, uh, given the truth of that. Um, that thesis. So it's kind of backwards reasoning. You, you, you take the thesis to be true, and then you look at what things would be um, um, reasonably attributed to that relationship of John and Mary, given the truth of the thesis. And if you accumulate enough of evidence of this sort over the course of the, of the gospel, then you have what Newman would call a convergence of pro probabilities, which might even amount to a kind of proof. Now, before we go on, I wanted to say something about the proof text, possibly. And this occurred to me on Easter morning. If you went to the Easter morning Mass, the scripture that's read there is from the Gospel of John, and it is that scene that I just described of Peter and John running to the tomb. And again, John pauses. Peter goes in. They look at uh, the shroud um, and the, the, the head wrapping that's put to the side. And John says something like, they saw and then they believed. And then there's a really interesting comment. Because they had, they had not yet seen the truth that he had to rise from the dead. Now, when I render this in Greek, I, I say it was not possible for him not to rise from the dead, which is logically equivalent. And to say that something is necessary is to say that it's impossible that it not happen. And... Um, it, it's such a striking comment, and I wonder when you've heard that verse whether you've thought, what is the significance of that? Why is that even being said here, right? And here's what I think that verse is doing. Mary was at the foot of the cross, Mary the mother of God, and she did not go, she saw the tomb where it was, but she did not go to the tomb on Easter morning, right? Why not? Maybe you've heard priests preach on this, but a very common view in the tradition is she had complete faith that Jesus has ri had risen from the dead, and so she had no need to go to the tomb. Right. This comment of John, they did not see the truth yet, that it couldn't be except that he rose from the dead. He had to rise from the dead. It's like he has in mind some standard of action that they had not conformed to. Right. If they really believed, if they really saw the truth of it, they wouldn't even have gone to the tomb. They wouldn't have, had to need, they wouldn't have needed to go to the tomb, look inside the tomb, see the wrappings, and then believe. Right. So the statement suggests that John writes this verse with a view towards someone who did have that degree of belief, which would be, so to speak, Mary standing beside his side in his, his imagination at least. So maybe that is a proof text. Okay, so as I said, we assume ro robustly Mary's influence on John, and then we look for evidence of the sort that would be expected given the truth of this thesis. And right away, we see there are various large-scale features of the Gospel of John. You know, it differs from the synoptics. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called synoptics. That is, means they take the same view of the life of Jesus, and John is, of course, very different, right? So what are the ways in which John is different? Can, can these made kind of global differences be explained, or are they what would be expected um, given Mary's influence? That's the way I'd like to put it. Well, here's one. What about the very composition or what the gospel is about? Right? So the gospel of Mark, uh, it became very clear to me when I worked on the gospel of Mark, is basically a recounting of uh, great deeds, powerful works, dunamis is the Greek word, powerful works of Jesus, exorcisms, healings, calming storms. In fact, there's no teaching in the Gospel of Mark until about the 10th chapter, right? And there are some parables early on, true enough, about the kingdom. But it's, there's nothing like the Sermon on the Mount, there's no instruction, it's just marvelous deeds that you find in Mark. John's kind of the opposite. I mean, John consists of conversations. It's actually a series of conversations that are stitched together by a narrative frame. 
This became very clear to me when I saw the movie. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie with Christopher Plummer as the narrator. It's just called The Gospel of John. And I watched it when, when I was working on this book. And the, the screenplay of the movie just is the text of The Gospel of John. But there's a narrator also, Christopher Plummer. And you see the same thing in The Gospel of John. There's a narrative frame, and then you know, one after the other are interactions or conversations which, with which Jesus has the woman in the well, the man born blind from birth, and so on. Um, so the fact that the gospel consists of conversations right, is the sort of thing that you would expect if a woman played some role in the composition of the gospel. Okay. Second, the gospel of John unwinds from the point of view of Jesus, not from the point of view of the disciples. Right. Again, take Mark as a contrast. In the Gospel of Mark, a series of misunderstandings. Right? They're trying to figure out who he is. He calms the storm at sea. They still don't know what sort of person this is, that even the wind and the seas obey him. Finally, by the end, it looks like maybe Peter's figured it out. But then he abandons Jesus at the end. Right? It's largely about misunderstandings, lack of faith, and abandonment by the disciples. It's the point of view of the disciples. Gospel of John, on the other hand, is from the point of view of Jesus. It's the light came into the world, and he came to his own people. His own people received him not. The, the darkness tried to suppress this light, but failed to do so. It's from the point of view of our Lord, and his divinity is firmly uh, asserted from the very beginning of the gospel. There's no coming to the realization that he's God. That's presented at the very beginning of the gospel. By the way, that's something that one would expect if Mary played a role in its composition. Because consider this, I think this is a really important um, idea for this, uh, this work. Mary, from the moment of our Lord's conception, understood that he was God. The angel Gabriel said that, he would be Emmanuel, God with us, who's to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, which implies he'd be a divine being. Right? In a, in a sense, God had to tell Mary, if you understand the Annunciation as God's marriage proposal to the human race, right? you can't assent to a marriage proposal unless it's free. You can't be free unless you know what you're assenting to. You have to know that you're assenting to an incarnation. Right? So for this to be a free act, and then for Mary to be pregnant and carrying God and not know that, right? it would be a gross injustice to her if she didn't know that. It would be like carrying a pyx with the Eucharistic host, consecrated host, and just believing it was a piece of bread. Right? Uh, we wouldn't allow anyone to do that. I don't think God would allow Mary to do that. So it follows, I think, from various considerations that Mary understood that Jesus was divine from the moment of his conception. Therefore, she had 30 years to ponder this before he entered public life. Right? There's no matter of discovering who he was once he entered public life. She had been pondering that and thinking about it for 30 years already. Right, and that explains the marriage feast of Cana. Right, do whatever he tells you. Right. Well, what exactly was he going to tell them? Right, get a wagon and some wineskins and drive down to Jerusalem and round up some wine because he ended up creating. If you if you figure out the do the math, it's 800 bottles of wine. It must have been a pretty large marriage feast. I think we can assume he wasn't intending everyone get kind of blindingly drunk. So it was a very large feast. There was basically only one thing that could be done to solve the problem that was to create wine. And Mary obviously had perfect confidence from the very start that he could create, therefore that he was God. Right. So <coughs> it's from the point of view of our Lord, not the disciples. This helps to explain why the, there are the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Seven times Jesus takes the name of God, I am. Uh, upon himself in the Gospel of John. You know, theologians used to puzzle, why is that so? Why is it not in the other Gospels? It's so important. And the truth is, if you, um, if you have, don't have the right conceptual apparatus, you might say, you can't perceive certain things that others, others perceive who have that, right, that apparatus, and you don't remember things because you don't perceive them. Right. So Mary being fully confident that Jesus was divine, would be able to perceive and to remember ways in which he spoke in which he took the name of God uh, for himself, I am. Right? Whereas the disciples in their confusion, 
not surprising if they wouldn't even perceive that. Right. And remember, in the Magnificat, Mary says, and holy is his name. She's very jealous for the name of God, and she wants her son to be identified as I am. Then in the Gospel of John, there's a kind of layering. And, um, you know, you have a, 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 a remarkable act of mercy, like uh, the man behind, uh, next to the pools uh, who had been paralyzed for so many years and couldn't get into the pool, who's cured, or the man blind from birth, or the woman taken in adultery. And in between are Jesus' encounters with uh, the leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, and typically they're confounded in some way. Right. So a kind of alternation of mercy shown towards the poor and lowly, confounding of the haughty. Right. Where else do you see alternation of these statements? It's in the Magnif Magnificat. Right. One, one verse is about you know, the rich, he's sent away empty, the hungry, he's filled with good things. That is the way Mary thinks, as disclosed in the Magnificat. And the structure of the Gospel of John is the same. It has the same structure. And then what about the so-called prologue of the Gospel of John? Right. Why begin with a prologue? And the Gospel of Mark begins with Jesus' public ministry, that John the Baptist and Jesus shows up and he's baptized. Right? John does the same, but be prior to that is the so-called prologue. Well, what is the prologue? The prologue is the account of the eternal sonship of the Word and his entering into the world. That's if you will, the analog of the infancy narratives in Luke and Matthew. So Luke and Matthew are the generation of Christ, the God-man, from the point of view of human nature. The Gospel of John is the generation of the God-man from the point of view of divine nature. Right. So it makes perfect sense that there's a kind of um, you know, account of his divine nature in the Gospel of John playing the same functional role as the infancy narratives and the Synoptic Gospels. Okay, so these, that's just five global characteristics of the Gospel of John, which set it apart from the Synoptics. And in saying those five things, you pretty much say everything that sets it, sets it apart. And yet they're all consistent with this hypothesis, I think, in a very elegant way. So then, um, you know, a lot of the commentary involves looking at particular details. And you know, chapters one by one, details within that chapter. Are there interesting details which, again, are consistent with this thesis? I mean, take, for example, the visit of Nicodemus by night. Right. What do they talk about? Well, I'm sure I didn't talk for just three minutes, because if you read the passage out loud, it takes three minutes, right? But what's recounted there? And by the way, I should say something about how this hypothesis of Mary's influence we'd expect to be manifested, mainly by selection, actually, um, by what gets included rather than not. Now, just, I want to just step back and make this point. John is very aware of the need to select. He says at the end of his gospel, if everything that Jesus did and everything connected with it were written down, the whole world likely couldn't even contain all the books that would be necessary to do this, right? So he's, he's overwhelmed with what he could say. And he's written just a you know, handful of events. Right? So which things do you select? So if one of the ways in which you test this hypothesis is, this, is the selection of this, the sort of thing that you'd expect. Okay, so Nicodemus and, and Jesus are together for an evening, and they, if, if they spoke for a couple of hours, that would be the length of the Gospel of John itself. There are a few sentences from their conversation that are recalled. What do they deal with? How is it possible, Nicodemus asked, that an old man get back into the womb again and be born? Right. An interesting detail. Like you can imagine Mary working you know, in the kitchen preparing some drinks for them or something like that, and all of a sudden like, somebody speculating about getting up into the womb again? I mean, it's a very, very strange statement, isn't it? But it's exactly what a woman would pick out, isn't it, of a long conversation. Or, you know, speaking of childbirth, John is the only gospel in which the passion and resurrection are likened to a woman giving, uh, um, going into labor, as our, our Lord uses that image. Here's another one which I find really striking. It's in John 7. Jesus is standing in the temple and he shouts out, anyone who believes in me will have streams of living water flowing out from his 
Do you remember? <laughs> from is what? Anyone? I mean, it's sometimes rendered inmost being, sometimes chest, sometimes heart. But the King James, King James Version says belly. And I think the Douay Reims also had belly. And the Greek term is koilia, which means generally, right? It means the, uh, what's in that cavity. Um, and they didn't have good knowledge of anatomy. It typically gets construed as the organ of the woman, which is the womb. So koile is the standard word for the womb. Um, Luke, who is a doctor or believed to be a doctor, always uses koilia for the womb. Right. Well, it's an interesting uh, word. I mean, did Jesus speak Greek at that point? Um, there are different views on this. I, I do think he, he spoke Greek. He might have spoken Greek at the temple gathering where people were coming from around the diaspora and were gathering in the temple. So he might have very well used that, that very language in Greek um, rather than baden, I think is the Aramaic word, which is the equivalent. But um, the point is it's really, and which functions in the same way, by the way, as koilia in Greek, it, um, it's very, very striking language. So much so that it's never even rendered um, uh, literally. It's hardly rendered literally. Now, where does water come out um, from, from a woman when she's about to give birth, right? Waters break and actually come out of the womb. No, no, no doubt there's some kind of prefiguring of what happened on the cross, like the piercing of his side and water and blood come out of his side, right? But, uh, so there are many details like that. Um, I'll just say um, one other thing, and that has to do with the appendix. So uh, you may have noticed that the theme of eternal life is uh, very prominent in the Gospel of John. Um, zoe ionios is, is the Greek term. And um, David Bentley Hart has done a translation of the New Testament and written several articles in which he argues that that phrase means just life for the age, because ion, he says, it's derived from. And that is like our eon. It's uh, some kind of indefinite period of time, but not eternity. Right. And he needs to say this because he's a universalist. And in Matthew 25, Jesus says that the, um, those who are um, judged well by our Lord in the last judgment will enter into zoe ionios, but those who eternal or everlasting life, whereas those who are not are to enter into everlasting punishment. And um, Hart doesn't believe in hell, so he can't, that can't be everlasting. And so throughout the New Testament, wherever this phrase occurs, it's life for the age. So what I do is I look very carefully at uh, phrases, especially in the Septuagint, and how they're used in relationship to phrases in the Gospel of John. And I think in the appendix, I, I refute, actually, this construal of David Bentley Hart. Now, um, and I think it's decisive. Um, now, when I sent that to the publisher, the editor, um, she said to me, this is a book about Mary. You can't end with David Bentley Hart. You have to come up with something about Mary at the end of the book. So I kind of scratched my head, and I, I think I went to the Vatican website, and I typed in eternal life, and I found a catechetical instruction by St. Pope John Paul II which was entitled, Mary was the first creature to enter into everlasting life. And by that, by that he meant not she was the first one to enter into heaven or even enter body and soul into heaven because you know maybe Enoch did and maybe um, Ezekiel did. Um, is he the prophet of the Old Testament who, who went into, was it Ezekiel? Went into, went into heaven with chariots of fire. Um, but it's Mary was the first creature, Jesus not being a creature, the first creature to enter into the eternal life that was won by our Lord through his passion and towards which he paved the way by his, his resurrection. Right? So she was the first creature. And John Paul II in this um, catechetical instruction, he quotes very early passages from the fathers about the assumption or the dormition of Our Lady. And as I was reading these, I was struck by 
how each of them could be mapped onto some kind of passage in the Gospel of John or some feature of the Gospel of John. And then it occurred to me that the tradition of the Assumption of Mary is actually that the apostles were told about in advance by kind of revelation from Jesus and they gathered together either in Ephesus or more likely in Jerusalem for Mary's Assumption and they were all present at the time. It was such an important thing for them that they all gathered together from their apostolic journeys. And if that's true, then John, or in any case John was uh, taking care of Mary, he would have been a witness to the Assumption. Right. And, and this is the first time it ever occurred to me. Has it ever occurred to you that the Gospel of John was written by somebody who had witnessed the Assumption of Mary? But um, So after mapping these passages from the Fathers onto passages and aspects of the Gospel of John, I, I conclude, and this is now the conclusion of the book, although it would be impossible to prove that or not really workable to, tr to attempt to prove that Mary was assumed into heaven on the basis of these aspects of the Gospel of John. Nonetheless, in a very striking way, the Gospel of John seems to be written in the way that you would naturally expect someone to write if he had witnessed the assumption, right? So again, it's this kind of Bayesian approach. Let's you know, assume it to be so, and does the available evidence tend to corroborate that assumption? Then it does. So that's the conclusion of the book. I think that that's really pretty cool conclusion. And with that, I'll conclude this presentation. I'm happy to um, answer questions. Okay, so we have uh, a little bit of time for some questions. If you have any, please raise your hand, and I will bring the mic your way. Well, thank you, Erna. A very rich and uh, uh, fascinating thesis on the rather persuasive of Dr. Reddy, but I just feel it connected to the case. Um, how has it been received by, by others that know more about this than, than I do? Have you had any feedback yet? Yeah, there have been several reviews. I mean, one in First Things, one in Catholic World Report, one in National Catholic Register. Very positive, very, very strong reviews. I've heard from just one biblical scholar at Steubenville who likes it quite a lot and says it's, uh, you know, mar he thinks it's marvelous. Now, this, you know, this group of um, professors who are New Testament experts are kind of a finicky lot. And this work, um, although I've read lots and lots and lots in the historical critical method, it generally doesn't engage that tradition and no secondary literature by design. Um, uh, that's not my interest um, to locate my work within that world of scholarship. So they may regard it as therefore um, naive in some kind of way or presumptuous or, or unsatisfactory from their point of view. On the other hand, what I am trying, I am, as I said, you know, I spent many, many weeks, months um, reading in the Harvard Divinity School Library the works of the historical critical school. Um, I want to shift uh, the way scholarship is done, not scholarship in general in the Bible. Of course, this archaeological work and even this uh, you know, redaction criticism and source criticism has value. I, do, I use this, these methods when I work on Aristotle, but I want to create a space for a different kind of scholarship, and that's looking at the formation of texts through the influence of persons rather than through the influence of other texts, or even oral traditions which have something like the rigidity of, a, of an established text. So. Um, you know, the first work on uh, Mark's Gospel was the influence of Peter uh, below the surface. And this is influence of Mary below the surface. And I find that an extremely interesting way of, uh, just as a scholar, as of looking at the text. Yes? Uh, Professor, I really enjoyed your presentation. Uh, thank you so much for your talk. And I enjoyed the memoirs of Peter a couple years ago. Uh, Thanks. I have not read this book, though, so it's great to have an um, I guess I'm wondering um, the studying Greek, reading the Bible regularly, daily for decades, that obviously influenced your reading of Scripture. But what uh, devotions to Mary do you have that might have assisted in your writing? 
Well, after I wrote after I wrote it, I realized I've actually said a prayer to Saint John every single day of my life for the last twenty years, um, and that's kind of unusual. Like people don't pray to evangelists, um, and you know, uh, it actually has to do with the passing of my first wife. I'm my, my first wife died of cancer at an early age. And at the time of her death, I became very um, devoted to St. John the Evangelist because it seemed to me that he was the patron saint of, um, of, of, youthful, of youth, of people preparing for marriage, and of the elderly. And you know, at that time, I, was, I could count myself as young, and I married again. And I saw that there was a kind of scope to what I was engaged in. If you marry again, um, you know, after you've already been married for 20 years, and you're starting another family, which I, you know, we had eight, my current wife and I have had eight children, you are projecting to old age. Right? What you're up to is something which, God willing, is going. So that whole span of youth preparing for marriage and old age was in my mind. It seemed to me that, that John the Evangelist was the patron to go to. And he had something deep to do with the uh, resurrection. Because um, uh, you know, I'll send it to you. You know, email me, and I, I'll send you my prayer, which I composed, and I've said every day. And it has to it has to do with John the John the Evangelist and and asking for his lights in contemplation and being able to share what I contemplate with others. And you know, then I read this. Then you know, I you know, I've been saying it every day almost automatically, and then. Wait a second! I've been playing, praying to John for for twenty years. You might might that have anything to do with the composition of this this book? Um, you know, maybe it did. Um, and um, you know, of course, we say the daily rosary, and in our family. And you know, I think Saint Pope John Paul II taught us all to be deeply Marian in our Catholicism. So I've tried to imitate him. And. Of course, the loss of my late, uh, late wife, um, she confided all of the children to Mary, not unlike the way our Lord did from the cross. So I've always thought of Mary as, as kind of the mother of those children. Of course, my new, new wife uh, embraced them immediately and was a very, you know, a very successful 23-year-old mother <laughs> of, of six. <laughs> so um, she was extraordinary back then, and she still is. But yeah, Mary, Mary has been a real maternal presence in our household. So we yes. have some people online who have some questions for us. Yes. Um, one listener at home asks, why did the church not recognize the doctrine of the Assumption until 1950? Uh, the church, okay, so the question is why did the, the church not recognize the gospel? the Doctrine of the Assumption until 1950, and it defined it infallibly in 1950, but uh, I don't know, did everyone believe it? Lots and lots of people believed it. So it's a kind of interesting use of papal the, the power of papal infallibility. It's not, as Newman says, that it needs, to, it needs to exist, Newman said, if there's a matter which potentially could divide the church and it needs to be resolved by the Pope in such a way that it's correct, so the church isn't going off in the wrong direction. You need a power of papal infallibility. But it's clear that its ex exercise in 1950 was not for that purpose. It was Catholics were so enthusiastic about this doctrine that they wanted confirmed and super confirmed. It's like, you know, why do you get married? You get married because you want to wrap as many commitments around you and the other person as you possibly can. Um, one of the reasons. You want to confirm it and reconfirm it and strengthen it, and that was the reason why it was defined in 1950. And then one more audience question um, from online. Um, Ken is wondering why you draw so much from uh, St. John Henry Newman for your marvelous commentary. Yeah, so I should say something about that. You know, there are various things about this book, I think, which I believe alone would justify the purchase of the book. I think the translation is very crisp and very uh, striking, and it slaps you in the face. That's my goal, is to slap you in the face if I do that. If somebody reads it and says, this is like reading the Gospel of John for the first time, it's a success. And I think I do that in this translation as I did in the Gospel of Mark. So the translation itself, I think, is, is worth the price of the book. And then I think the refutation of Dave, David Bentley Hart, Hart is as well. 
But then um, one of the things I do is I collect together the, okay, the, the, the greatest hits in the tradition of commentary on the Gospel of John. The, the Catholic intellectual tradition is blessed with great masterpiece commentaries on John's Gospel by uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, um, St. John Chrysostom, and St. Augustine especially. But there's also a kind of implicit commentary by S John Henry Newman. And he translates, uh, he translated into English the Catena Aurea, the, the golden chain of commentary of Thomas Aquinas on John's Gospel. So when that was being undertaken by Oxford scholars in the 1830s and 40s, Newman took upon himself the task of translating the Catena Aurea on the Gospel of John. But then it's also clear from Newman's um, sermons that the Gospel of John is the most important of the Gospels for him. He comments on it more than any other Gospel and repeatedly and comes back to it and certain verses are really, really important for him. And by the way, he doesn't, it becomes clear in, in some comments he makes, he doesn't know whether he's named after the Evangelist or the Baptist. But I think he believes it's the Evangelist. But, um, and so whenever I, I came to a verse like chapter 19, verse 18, I would look up, there's an index of Newman's references to scripture, and I would look up in that index what Newman said about that, and if it was a, you know, a great treasure, I would pull it out and put it into this book. So the book is also a kind of collection, a collation of Newman's best comments on the Gospel of John. Now, okay, why Newman rather than someone else, because lots of people I'm sure have commented on John, for two reasons. First is Newman, Newman's personalism, his relational approach, um, I think actually was learned from the Gospel of John. And so when you bring it back into the Gospel of John, you're, you're applying something that conforms to the Gospel, very close to the Gospel, because it's actually acquired from the Gospel. So this core ad core loquitur, Newman's motto, heart speaks to heart, I think was from John. Um, and, and so therefore Newman has a special insight into the Gospel of John. He's, um, if there were more time, I could tell you some of the kind of themes even in the commentary that I took from Newman and, 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 and elaborated on. And then also just myself personally, um, there was one year when I spent, uh, for spiritual reading, I worked through all eight volumes of the parochial and plain sermons. And now when I look back at it, I say, how did I have the time for that? I mean, that's not 15 minutes a day. I mean, that's 2,000 pages of sermons, really. I when I was younger, I read like crazy, and now I very I've slowed down. I just read read little morsels from maybe ten books while I, while I read, but um, it and if it shaped me, I'm, I think Newman's insight into characters in the scripture is really extraordinary. So I would want to say that I've learned how to read the Bible, especially the New Testament, from Newman. So he's kind of my spiritual father. So that's another reason why I turn to Newman so so much in the commentary. It's not possible to tell from the Greek. The Greek is just ambi as ambiguous as the English is, and the, and the fathers go off in both directions on that particular verse. Not, it wouldn't be ironic, it's just kind of expectation that, um, I suppose the common view, the standard view among the fathers is that Jesus had been keeping his distance because it wasn't yet his time to be kind of whisked away and killed. There are people who are ready to do that and wanted to do that. And so it looked like if you're going to go to Jerusalem, that would be a, you know, a time to die. So it was just expectation of what Jesus, through his actions, had already indicated was likely to happen. But there's no special insight that you get from the Greek language at that point.
Well, that particular priestly prayer is, um, is, is um, I think it's understood and, and plain that he's saying it aloud in the presence of the dis disciples at the Last Supper. But you, you might ask the question, well, how did John remember it or recount it so well? And here I think Mary had a role because she, um, you know, the Holy Spirit was meant to be a, ca a, a consoler and a mother's a consoler. So Mary was gathered together with the um, disciples awaiting the coming down of the Holy Spirit. And she would understand her role to be similar to that of the Holy Spirit, at least insofar as she was a consoler. And um, so I think she would have, an, she was not present at the Last Supper, but she would have a special interest in the words that our Lord spoke then. It's very clear our Lord was interested in consoling the disciples too. Um, so she would um, have regarded it as her task to store up those words and, and keep them at hand, which we know that she liked to do from, the, from Luke, the Gospel of Luke. So we have time for one more question, um, and uh, Professor McCulloch, after that question, um, if you want to just leave some closing remarks what you'd like to leave the audience with. Is there anybody else who would like to ask an audience question? Or, or how about, how about you, you leave us with your final remarks, remarks. Um, since um, nobody else has asked. Well, you know, you asked me about devotion to Mary, and in a way, this whole work is comes from a kind of exuberance uh, with Mary, in a certain sense. Um, being an Aristotle scholar, I can't help bringing in Aristotle when, when, uh, when it's at all appropriate or even only a little bit appropriate. But as a remark at the beginning of the metaphysics that the subject matter of metaphysics, and I think he has in mind God and divine things, so extraordinary that even if we have a very dim grasp of it, it's more valuable than seeing plainly something that's more mundane. And he likens that to bats. He thinks of bats as having, you know, almost being blind, having very dim eyesight, but because the light is so bright that they might look at, um, it's, it's more to them. And for me, that's the way I have looked at Mary's voice. And we know so little about Mary directly from tradition. I mean, obviously, s there have been saints who have m meditated on her. And I think of, say, the Glories of Mary by Liguori, which is a great work, a treasury of um, commentary on Mary, the mirror of the, uh, the Blessed Virgin, um, speculum. But um, that you could hear Mary's overtones, you know, as in the Frost Sonnet, and be with her in reading a gospel, and kind of gain more uh, familiarity with her. And even if it's so slight, it's just such a great thing that um, it seemed to me, you know, to be at all successful at this would be just a great, a great treasure. So I'll just leave, leave that as a closing thought. I mean, just more time with Mary, more knowledge of Mary, more familiarity with Mary. One other closing thought. Okay. So, you know, I published these with Regnery Gateway, which is a secular press. Um, it's not Ignatius. It's not Sophia. Those are great um, publishing houses. But I want to reach as many people as I can, and uh, Protestants in particular, because I was a Protestant for a couple of years before I became a Catholic, and I think the love, my love of Scripture really can be traced back to when I used to memorize Bible verses as a Protestant. And my first, I should have said, my first Bible study as a Protestant was the Gospel of Mark. So one of the reasons I went to Mark is kind of like the first cut is the deepest. It's the first, first Gospel that I studied. But, you know, in the Gospel of Mark, when I brought in Peter in the Petrine office, and I, I put down the idea in that book that 
you know, if Peter was authoritative in selecting out those passages that we use now to construct our image of Jesus, then you, it's, it's like the pastoral office of the first pope has placed his hand on our picture of Jesus. We, we don't have any access to Jesus except through Peter, you might want to say. Well, maybe John is a separate tradition in a certain sense, but it's, it's, it, you can't be a Protestant, the way I wanted to be a Protestant, without being under the care of the first pope, right? So I love that. I love the harmonization, the bringing together of love of scripture and the Petrine office, right? And so what I'm trying to do in this uh, book is, is similar. It's a bringing together in a completely faithful, you know, very accurate, um, you know, with complete openness and fidelity and correspondence to what's in this gospel that together with Mary, the mother of God, which is such a difficult stumbling bl block for Protestants and was for me when I became, um, became a Catholic. I, I wrote to Father John Hardin. This would be my closing remark. Do I have one more time for one more minute? Okay. Father John Hardin, who's, uh, who, you know, who passed away a few years ago, he wrote that wonderful yellow catechism. Those of you who uh, were Catholics and practicing before the new catechism, um, the, the one reliable catechism before the current catechism, the official catechism, was one that Father John Hardin had written, and it had a yellow cover, and everybody called it the yellow catechism. I had a friend uh, from college who was a research assistant for Father John Hardin and had an audience with him when I was considering becoming Catholic, and then later wrote to him when I was on the verge of becoming Catholic, and I said, well, you know, I really accept everything that the church teaches, and um, you know, contraception was no issue. In fact, I, I came to think that contraception was wrong before I became a Catholic and became Catholic in part because of what the church taught about contraception and abortion. But I said the Marian doctrines, the assumption, immaculate conception, I can't make any sense of these. And I, I don't even understand why they're being proposed, like why it's taught. And Father Hardin wrote, and he said, at some point, you simply need to make an act of will. You have to say fiat. I become a Catholic, I accept these doctrines because the church teaches it, and you don't have to see their truth directly. Right? And that's what I did. It was completely unintelligible to me when I became a Catholic. And now here I am, decades later, <laughs> and I've written a book saying they could maybe even see the, the doctrine of the Assumption in the Gospel of John. So there you have it. <laughs>